0: So I'd like us uh, just for a, a wee while to come back to, uh, to this passage that we've read, Romans chapter 5. And uh, Romans is, is an absolutely awesome book. It's, uh, it's such a, a, a rich letter full of, of, um, of astounding, mind-blowing theology. Um, sometimes Romans can feel a bit of a complicated book to read, and, and sometimes it can be a wee bit hard uh, to follow. But um, it's important to remember, though, that, that in many ways, uh, Romans is just talking about one thing. Romans is talking about the gospel. And it's a brilliant explanation from beginning to end of how uh, the gospel works. It's an explanation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is trying to do that as he works through all the chapters of Romans. He's trying to explain how the gospel works. And um at chapter five, we we kind of are moving into a new section because in the, the chunk beforehand, uh, Paul has been building up this big argument uh, bit by bit. And uh, that, that argument began in the middle of chapter one. And he explains that that God is righteous, um, but humanity has rebelled against him. And as a result, we're unrighteous. God is a fair judge. But our righteousness makes us liable to His judgment. We've fallen short of His glory. The whole world is accountable to God's law, but inevitably, we are found guilty, and that means that 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 it's totally unfair and, and just uh, for God's wrath to be provoked. He has this perfect standard. We don't meet it, and and that leaves the world in a in a desperate situation, which Paul speaks about at the beginning of chapter 3 but uh, but God's response to that is to send his son and Jesus has come to be the one who would die in our place in order to turn God's wrath away so that our sin would be counted to Jesus and his righteousness would be counted to us and the result of that is that even though Paul is saying you know, God has his standards none of us meet them We're all accountable to God. We all fall short. We're all guilty because Jesus, because of what Jesus has done, we can be declared righteous. In other words, we can be justified because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And that justification is not the result of anything that we've done. It's an amazing gift from God which is received by faith. And Paul is building up this great argument in chapters 1, 2, and 3 that that's how we're saved. That's how the gospel works. Jesus has died in our place so that we can be justified, we can be declared righteous um, through faith in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, Paul uses Abraham as as an example to say that he was also justified by faith, just like we are. Um, The only difference is that Abraham was looking forward to God's promise, we have the amazing privilege of looking back and seeing what God has done. So the reason I wanted to just say all that is because at chapter five, we're coming up to, we're coming into the argument where Paul has basically been saying, look, justification by faith is at the heart of the gospel. It's a key element of how the gospel works. And and that's been, been a, a key truth that's been highlighted um, throughout the whole uh, of the history of the Christian Church, that 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 um, that the the true good news of the gospel is centered on this great doctrine of justification by faith. But that kind of raises the question: you know, is justification by faith what the gospel is really all about? Is that is that the thing that it's all about? Is that what it's all aiming for? Is justification by faith? the goal of the gospel. And it would be easy to think that it is, because often preachers like me will say, you know, you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ so that your sins can be forgiven, so that you can be justified. And it can sound as though, justification is the goal that we are all aiming for. But if we ask that question, is justification the goal of the gospel? The amazing truth that Paul is telling us is that the answer is no. So yet, justification is a vital part of the gospel. But Paul is teaching us that justification is actually just a stepping stone into a whole new realm of incredible blessing. And what Paul is showing us here and what I hope we will see tonight is that God doesn't just want to give you justification, He wants to give you way more and if we understand justification properly, that will make perfect sense to us because justification is a legal term. Um, we sometimes say it's a forensic term. That just means it's used in the context of of, of a judicial setting. Um, it's a legal term, a declaration made by the judge. So, if you want to get a good picture of it, imagine that you're in court. Imagine that you are standing in court. Um, uh, those of you in in, in who are. Watching you lose, can I imagine you're at the sheriff court in Stornoway. Those in London can be at the Old Bailey. You can picture yourself in court. You're facing condemnation and all the consequences that that's going to bring. But when it finally reaches the point when the verdict and the sentence is pronounced, the judge, instead of condemning you, he says justified. And that would be amazing. Imagine thinking that you're going to get condemned and you're finished, your life is over, and yet the judge, he or she, says this person is declared innocent. They're justified. That would be an incredible moment. But what would you do after that? Would you just sort of stand in the dock forevermore thinking, ah, phew, I've not been condemned. Would you just stand there, reflecting on the fact that the judge had just made that pronouncement. No, you wouldn't do that at all. What would you do? You would run to your family and embrace them. You would go out into the world and enjoy the amazing privilege of freedom. You'd get on with your life rejoicing and thinking to yourself, I never want to go back to where I was. And that's telling us that, yes, justification in itself is amazing, but what comes after it is even better. And that's what I want us uh, to think about tonight. Uh, And so our title is Justification is Just the Start. And Paul makes that very clear um, when he begins his discussion in uh, in Romans 5, chapter 5, because uh, we can see that he's moving into a new section because He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, I've got something really amazing to now tell you. And in the verses that follow, Paul speaks about some of the extraordinary blessings that follow on from justification. And there's lots we could say. I want to quickly highlight four things together. Number one. First of all, Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Justification has brought a change in our status. As we've been saying, we've been declared righteous before God. That change in status before God has resulted in a change of relationship with God. So, sin has made us enemies of God; we were alienated from him, and the evidence of that is still all around us. People are hostile to God, people rebel against him, uh, and we 've seen that in our own lives as well and as Paul has been saying in the chapters before this, that rightly provokes god 's wrath, and he is he is is, is is averse and hostile to towards all the unrighteousness that is within us. But because we have been justified, that alienation and hostility that exists between us and God has been replaced with peace. And the theological term for that is the word reconciliation, which we read later on in the chapter. You see, Paul speaks about that uh, in verses 10 and 11. He says, well, if, while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God. Uh, sorry, it went too far. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now that we are reconi- reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's speaking uh, of the fact that we who once were enemies, um, that, that enmity has now been replaced with friendship. We have peace with God. But what I want us to remember, and I think what's really important for us to remember um, in this context, is that, that first and foremost, peace with God is a fact, not a feeling. What Paul is talking about here is a fact before it's ever a feeling. Now, there are times... When when we feel an incredible sense of peace as Christians. Paul describes that in what we had as our call to worship. There's a peace which surpasses all understanding. And it's an amazing thing. It's amazing. But we don't always feel like that as Christians. Sometimes we don't feel at peace. Sometimes we worry. We sorrow. We feel a sense of regret. We feel afraid. And when that happens, it's so easy to think that because we don't feel peace, we're not at peace with God. So, for example, we make a mistake in our lives. We feel regret, frustration, and disappointment, and and because we don't feel at peace with ourselves, we can very easily think, Well, if I'm disappointed with myself, God is going to be even more disappointed with me, and He's going to want me at arm's length, or maybe He'll even want nothing to do with me. And for that reason, we feel like our friendship with God is so often spoiled or or rubbish. Maybe you feel like that. Maybe you feel like that tonight. Maybe you feel like that in the past week, that you're just a big letdown to God. And if if you were to ask God, you know, who are your truest friends? He would not include you in that list. Well, all of that's a reminder of how notoriously untrustworthy our feelings are. Because first and foremost, our peace with God is not a feeling. It is a fact, and that is where we see there's a difference between peace with God and peace from God. Peace from God is that wonderful feeling of assurance and security that we sometimes get as Christians, although not necessarily very often. But peace with God, peace with God, that that uh, is highlighted here in verse one, that is a guaranteed consequence of your justification. It's an objective reality that never changes and nothing can take it away. In other words, if you're a Christian or if you become a Christian, it is a theological fact that God is your friend forever. That's what Paul is saying. Your justification by faith means that you now have peace with God. You're reconciled to God. The enmity that once ruined your relationship with God has been exchanged for peace and friendship. And your feelings have absolutely no effect on that whatsoever. If you're a Christian or if you become one, you can never be alienated from God again. You can never be an enemy of God. You can never provoke the wrath of God Again, your friendship with God is an unbreakable friendship. God has made peace with you. He's made your friendship a theological fact. It is so, so easy to think that God's annoyed with you. I find I often think that, that that God will be disappointed or annoyed with me. Um, The truth is God is at peace with you. You're no longer enemies, your friends. But I can say all that and you think, well, yeah, that all sounds great, Thomas, but, you know, how can our peace with God be so constant? Uh, How can our peace with God be constant even though we muck up and make mistakes so often? You know, you think to yourself, well, that all sounds great, but I really am a rubbish Christian. And I really do make so many mistakes and, and you know, I've got, I've got things in my heart that if people knew, you know, they would, they would see that, you know, that God just would not want me anywhere near him. How can, how can that peace with God be constant even though we make so many mistakes? Well, Paul makes it absolutely clear how this is possible because he says the peace with God is through our Lord Jesus Christ. Your favour with God never rests on what you do. It is totally reliant on what Jesus did. That is why it is unbreakable. And that's why it's so amazing. If you're a Christian or if you become one, you have peace with God because you're united to Jesus Christ. You're God's friend because you're united to God's Son. And this is where we see how how amazing, how astounding the gospel is because in terms of spoiling the relationship between God and humanity, we're the ones who did all the damage. We diso- We suppressed the truth. We exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We turned away. We provoked God's wrath. When it comes to our friendship with God, we're the ones who mucked it up. But God's great goal is to put all of that right. We broke the relationship. He has come to restore it. We damaged the friendship. He's come to fix it. We made enmity. He has come to make peace. Now, none of that means that we don't still do things that can be displeasing to God. We can still grieve the Holy Spirit as Christians. But the whole reason we grieve him is because when we sin, we are sinning against our friend. And If you're maybe not yet a Christian yet or not sure, I really want you to see that this is what God wants for you too. He does not want to be your enemy. He does not want to give you a row. He does not want to be the kind of strict headmaster that's going to ruin your life. He does not want to be boring and dull. He wants to be your friend. He wants to make peace with you. And all you have to do is rest on all that Jesus has done. Peace with God is a theological Fact, and it's a living awesome fact. And of course, it's when we understand the fact of our peace with God. When we understand that fact, very often, then we'll be left with a feeling of peace from God. And it's a great reminder that it's in the theology of the gospel that we find our security and our reassurance. First thing we have peace. Second thing that we have uh, is access. Let me turn these around so you can see the verse a bit more clearly. So he says we've got peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So Paul's just told us that we have peace with God, but that's not some kind of distant accord where you kind of, you know, negotiate relationships. So there's, there's you know, we had the conflict in the Middle East There's been a ceasefire, which we're so thankful for. Um, But you can tell that, you know, the opposing sides still want to just keep at arm's length from one another. Um, That's not the kind of thing that Paul is meaning when he talks about peace. Our friendship with God is not kind of formal or, or nominal or just official. In the midst of the judicial language of justification, it's easy to think that God's relationship with us might be kind of cold, or official, but we must never ever think that the gospel of Jesus simply gives us a formal, um, official connection to God. Because the truth is, our justification gives us, gives us the most extraordinary of privileges. It gives us access to God. By faith, we are a, we have access to grace. Of God and were able to stand not simply as God's uh, acquaintances or associates but as his precious beloved people. That's why that when when Jesus illustrates how God reacts to a repentant sinner, he does not describe a ruler who signs a peace treaty uh, or a politician who who uh, reaches a trade agreement. How does he describe it? He describes a father running to meet his prodigal son. And who throws his arms around him and embraces him and who pours out love and reassurance upon this child who was once lost, but now is found. When God justifies us, he wants to do more than just end hostility. He wants more than just official reconciliation. He wants to draw us into his arms and bless us with the abundance of his grace. He wants to give us access. Now that word access that I did a line under there is a really interesting word because it can, conveys the idea of getting admission into the presence of someone in a higher position. So the idea of gaining the right uh, to speak to someone important. And I'm sure, you know, being in London, you can you can relate to that, full of important people, but access to them is not easy. Uh, you guys can't just wander up to Downing Street to hand over a wedding present uh, to Boris and um, Carrie, I think her name is. Uh, These people just, you know, they're important, so we don't have access to them. But just think about what Paul is saying here. If you're a Christian or if you become one, you have a right of access to God. Now, we absolutely don't earn that. Paul's making a great emphasis on grace in this verse as well. It's not something that we earn. It's through Jesus Christ. And even though we do not and cannot earn it, we have it. And that means that you have the right to talk to God. You have the right to His time, to His attention, to His care, His comfort, and to His wisdom. And no one can ever take that right away from you. No one can ever say that God's you know, God's too busy for you, that God's got better things to do than listen to your prayers, or that God's not that interested. He's got way more important things on his agenda. No one can ever say that to you. And you might say to yourself, well, well nobody does ever say that to me. And that's probably true, but all too often we say it to ourselves. It's so easy to think that God would not want us anywhere near him. But through faith in Jesus Christ, you have an immutable right of access to God himself. And because of this access, we have all the privileges of Christian living. We worship. So even though God is massively big and we are pathetically small, we can come and worship him, praise him and thank him. And despite our weaknesses, our worship is actually pleasing to him. We have the right to pray. We can talk to God about our lives. We can ask him for the things we need. We can intercede for others. We can pour out our burdens to him. And we have the right to repent. And that's incredibly important to remember because it's a right we constantly need to exercise. Because we make mistakes and sometimes we make very, very, very stupid mistakes. But we have a right of access to God so that we can say that we're sorry. If you're a Christian or if you become one, you have a right of access to God. And and even though that can seem too good to be true, you can be absolutely certain that you have this right. Why? Because it's God Himself that's given it to you. And as Christians, we stand on the basis of that right every step of the way. So we have peace. Um, we have access, uh, the third thing we have is hope through him we've obtained access by faith, let me make it bigger so you can see it, hold on a moment, there we go um, through him we've access by faith into this grace in which we stand, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, not only that but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance endurance produces character character produces hope, there it is again and hope does not put us uh, to shame As a result of our justification, we have hope. Now, Christian hope's not kind of a sort of nervous optimism that the Bible might be true um, or that we might get to heaven. Christian hope is the certain expectation and the excited anticipation of all that lies ahead for us. In other words, Christians have hope because we know that with God, the best is yet to come. And this is where we see so clearly that justification is not the conclusion of the gospel. It's not the thing that we're aiming for. It's just the start It's the starting point from which amazing blessings follow. And the culmination of these blessings is nothing less than the glory of God. You can see that just in the middle there, the hope of the glory of God. Now, what does that mean when Paul says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God? Well, the, the glory of God is speaking about God's just his infinite worth, his brightness, his magnificence, his splendor. You know, you ask what is God like? He is glorious. Utterly indescribable in his majesty, beauty, radiance. He's just amazing. Perfect in goodness. Perfect in wisdom. Perfect in gentleness. Perfect in righteousness. Perfect in holiness. Perfect in love. Everything in God is as substantial and as bright and as radiant as it can possibly be. And in the gospel, God is saying, I want to be all of that for you. And so as Christians, we have an amazing hope because God's great goal is to bring us to glory, to bring us into his presence so that we'll be with him forever and experience all the magnificence of his glory. And so when we die, our souls will go to be with him in heaven. And when Christ returns, our bodies will be raised and we'll dwell forever in the new creation. And there you will experience the glory of God like never before. Do you ever think about that, the fact that even the very best of what we experience of God now is just a shadow and a glimpse of what we'll experience then? So now we experience joy in the Lord, but then our joy will be overflowing. Now we experience peace, then our peace will be totally complete. Now we know God's care and gentleness, then we will know that tender, loving care of God more closely and personally than ever before. Now we know God's love in the midst of a hard world, but then we'll know God's love in all of its wonderful fullness. Now we experience joy and gentleness and love and so many other blessings. These things are amazing. That's why being a Christian is amazing. But the astounding thing is, is that the very best of what you experience now as a Christian is still just a glimpse. It's almost as though God says, you just wait until you get the glorified version of my peace, my joy, my gentleness, and my love. If you're a Christian or if you become one, your justification means that God has put you on the path to enjoy his glory forever. And that means that now we have the most amazing hope. And what Paul makes clear is that that hope uh, is is the key uh, for enduring suffering. He says, "We rejoice now in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope." Suffering is hard, and we all experience it in so many different ways, and. For so many people, the last year has, has been intensified suffering for many. And I'm sure that all of you are experiencing suffering in one way or another. But the key thing that we've been reminded of here is that suffering is not pointless and it's not useless. It's actually going to help you grow in endurance so that you can keep going. It's going to shape your character to make you more like Jesus. And as your character grows, as your mind is conformed more and more to God's ways, you'll be able to see even more clearly just how much God has prepared for those who love Him. And that's why no matter what, um, no matter what life might bring us, we will not be put to shame. No matter how much you suffer as a Christian, In the end, God will never be ashamed of you. He'll never abandon you to scorn or disgrace. Because in the end, God will just take you home and crown you and love you as his very own. Suffering is always really hard, but we must never forget that ultimately all it is ever doing to us is taking us a step closer to that glorious day when we will be with Jesus and with one another forever. So that's three of our four things. We've said that because of our justification, we have peace with God. We have uh, access to God and his grace. We have hope of the glory of God. Uh, And then last of all, um, we, we have the Holy Spirit. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through oh sorry through God the Holy Spirit who has been given to us Paul is reminding us of the amazing truth that if you put your trust in Jesus and are justified by his blood shed on the cross through his blood shed on the cross God the Holy Spirit himself comes to dwell in your heart that's what the Bible describes as baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's the experience of every Christian the moment of their conversion. God himself comes to dwell in our hearts, making us his temple. So since you have been justified, you have God, the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's helpful to do that. Let me just make the, the screen bigger again. Sometimes we can... Um, uh, it's important to remember the connections. Your Paul's introduced this whole passage with this phrase, since we have been justified. And then if we just skip over these sweet bits, we can see we have the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's all part of what falls on from justification. That, of course, means that God is with you. And that all makes perfect sense because we've been saying that the alienation is gone. The hostility is gone. Friendship has been created. In fact, that friendship is so close and so strong, God himself has come to dwell within you, making you his temple. But I want to ask the question, what is the Holy Spirit? What does God, the Holy Spirit, do in your heart? Well, there's loads that we could say. We can say the Holy Spirit is doing a work of sanctification. He's renewing you and making you more and more like Jesus. That's true. That's amazing. We can say that he's writing His God's law on your heart. That's a key part of the Old uh, Old Testament prophecies about what Jesus would accomplish, that God's law would be written upon our hearts. God, the Holy Spirit, is working to produce fruit in your life. We often go to Galatians 5 and think about the fruit of the Spirit that we all want to bear in our lives, and, and these come from within, from our heart, and manifest themselves outwardly. The Holy Spirit is doing all of these things. He's doing an amazing work in your heart, but Paul doesn't talk about any of them in Romans 5. Verse 5. Here, Paul tells us something else that God, the Holy Spirit, is doing. He tells us that he is pouring God's love into your heart. Now, I just want you to think about that for a wee second, as I this is the last thing I'm going to say. Um, the Holy Spirit's got an awful lot to do in your heart and mine. There's a lot of renovation work to be done. There's a lot of baggage in my heart, in yours. There's an awful lot of sinful nonsense and stupidity that needs to be sorted out. And, and God, the Holy Spirit, as he, as he comes to dwell in my heart, and if, if you imagine the heart is like this room or the room that you're in, you could imagine the Holy Spirit saying, oh my goodness, there's a whole pile of junk in here we need to sort out. Um, and, and, and looking in my heart, the Holy Spirit could find so much to criticize. But Paul is reminding us that he has not come to criticize. He has come to pour into your heart the deepest comfort and assurance that God loves you. So before God sorts you out, He first and foremost wants to show you that he loves you so, so much. And that's why Paul can go on um, to speak about the Holy Spirit as the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. God himself has come into your heart because he wants to pour his love into you. For you to know that through faith in Jesus Christ, you are God's precious child. And he is your devoted dad. And that is why we must never forget uh, that justification is just the start. The judge has declared you righteous. But what he really wants to do is to make you his child and to pour his love upon you forever. That's where the gospel is going to take you. And the incredible thing is that it's so simple. For every Christian, for everyone who is a Christian, That's where God is taking you. And for any of you who wants to become a Christian, all you have to do is put a childlike, simple trust in our perfect, amazing Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that justification is just the start. Thank you that we have peace with you, that we have access to you, that we have hope in you, and that we have your Holy Spirit in us. We just marvel at how amazing the gospel is. And we worship you, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, the God of amazing grace. Amen.